Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Well, I'm looking forward to introducing this next guest to you. It's my friend, Steve Ritter, and this is the guy I call upon when some training client is, is talking to me or a prospect about uh, maybe doing some some work, a workshop, and they tell me what's going on, and I think, mm, you know, that sounds more so toxic and problematic, and a Myers-Briggs workshop isn't what you want. You need to fix some basic issues first. I send them to this guy, Steve Ritter, and he's not a super flashy keynoter, but he just patiently works through the challenging questions and issues and stuff that it takes to get to the root of a matter and, and make it all better. So I am so pumped to share with you some input that Steve Ritter has about, you know, what are the key differentiators between toxic and healthy teams and what are some things you can do to make the, the leap to be less toxic and more healthy. So you'll learn, one, why strategic planning is often a monumental failure. Two, the pillars of Steve Ritter's team clock model for successful teaming. And three, common behaviors that cause dysfunctions in teams and how to correct them. And again, if you want the show notes, the transcript, the links to things mentioned, you'll find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep36. And if you want just the takeaways faster, sign up for the gold nugget email list over at awesomeatyourjob.com and you can read some of the key takeaways in under two minutes. Here's a bit about Steve. Steve Ritter has served as a human resources leader, teacher, author, and consultant. He is a fellow of the American College of Healthcare Executives, the founder and CEO of the Team Clock Institute, the managing director of the Midwest Institute and Center for Workplace Innovation, and the author of Team Clock, a guide to breakthrough teams and useful pain, why your relationships need struggle. Steve is on the faculty of the Center for Professional Excellence at Elmhurst College, and he's the former senior vice president and director of human resources at Leaders Bank, which one the number one best place to work in Illinois award in 2006 and the APA's Psychologically Healthy Workplace Award in 2010 during his reign. He consults organizations that include Kraft Foods, Kellogg's, Advocate Healthcare, the Chicago White Sox, Northwestern Mutual, Illinois Hospital Association, and Starcom Worldwide. Here's Steve. Steve, thanks so much for appearing on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thanks, Pete. Thanks for welcoming me onto the podcast. Oh, yes. Well, it's it's been a a fun road in terms of uh, how we've known each other. And you've got some great credentials on the bio, but one thing that is not on the bio is your epic guitar performances. Can you speak about that? Uh, uh, well, my epic guitar performances probably happen mostly in the basement with uh, pizza and cold beverages. It's a bunch of buddies that have been getting together for 25 or 30 years. And we, uh, we order some pizza and we pull out our instruments and, Somebody hits a groove with a couple of chords and the drums come in and the bass comes in and someone does a lead solo and 20 minutes later we look at each other and kind of nod and say that sounded good and then someone does something else and three or four hours later it's uh, you know it's 11 o'clock at night and we say goodbye and put the date on the calendar for the next month so it's kind of a cool thing. I think in 30 years Pete we've had three gigs <laughs> and two, two of them probably don't count so one of them we actually played in the basement level, the double door in 2010. Okay. So that was kind of a cool gig. Oh, certainly. Yes. Well, and that's fun. And yeah. so I'd also like to hear talking about authorship. So I, I remember when Team Clock was just a draft 
in a Microsoft Word document. And now it's uh, it's, a, it's a full book and some more and a blog and a business and, and a brand. And so can you give us a bit of a, an update? What is the, this Team Clock concept all about, for starters? The Team Clock was this model that kind of appeared in my head a long time ago that said, if you thought of those teams or those relationships as a cycle, you know, every spot on the clock from one o'clock all the way back around to 12 could be represented by something important that happens in that relationship or on that team or in that organization. And that, and that most teams don't just kind of move sequentially in a line from, you know, forming and getting together to storming and having conflict to norming and kind of setting some rules moving forward to then performing and then having some kind of a celebration that, uh, that we did it. We're a team now. Most teams and most relationships and most groups and organizations keep growing cycle after cycle after cycle. So, you know, as you know, as an example, Nancy and I have been married 38 years now. I bet we've gone through a dozen of those cycles. You know, you can imagine the highlights of those, right? So we've gone around a cycle of being kind of a playing house young people being married and then having kids changes the things that you invested in the risks that you take as you've got precious cargo on board now and then kids become teenagers and all of a sudden the stakes are higher and the things that you choose to do are driven by that and then they move on and your life changes and as you know we're pretty close to uh, welcoming a grandchild into our lives and so the way we spend our time and the things we invest in and what's close and important to us changes and so marriage is a good example of thinking about that we can apply the same rubric to any team or any organization goes through stages and so the clock is a way of saying one o'clock this is what happens and then two o'clock this is what happens and it gives people kind of a recipe or a guide for what a healthy team or a healthy organization looks like. So that's the model. And then we built an assessment tool that kind of helps you see where you're strong and weak. And we built a lot of training resources so we can help teach people what some of the principles of effective effective teaming are. And we do a fair amount of coaching around that. And well, and so can you talk a little bit about some of this impact? Now, if if you have this understanding that there are kind of cycles and different phases of, of a team's life, Tell me sort of what happens in practice where, where that translates into impact. I think that at its surface, you could say, okay, yeah, that makes some sense. But then when folks are working with their teams and the rubber meets the road, how do they sort of screw that up in terms of they failed to heed where they are on the team clock or, or the phase that they're in? And what sorts of interventions make a difference there? Well, let me, let me just kind of give you a, a case example off the top of my head. So, so there is a, there's a, a medical team that's stocked by world-renowned published physicians. And so the, the group around the table are basically all brilliant people of some variety of another and, you know, would be considered outstanding individual performers. And so, you know, you assume that, that if you kind of take that brilliance and you take that outstanding individual performance, you know, whether that's medical prowess or whether that's, you know, bedside manner or whether that's Nobel Prize winning level publication, whatever you call the genius that's around the table. And then you add to that that 
uh, someone's friendly or respectful, then some people think, well, that is, you know, that constitutes a team as you've got great performers who are kind to each other and that's a team. But what gets in the way sometimes is that not all relationships go well. And so there may be some competition between physicians or there may be, you know, maybe that the person got to the level of individual performance that they've had by climbing the, over the backs of their peers and competing with them and being the, you know, the valedictorian of their high school and being the top student in their college and getting into the best medical school. And now they're in a profession where they have to collaborate, you know, in a multidisciplinary way with nurses and occupational therapists and all sorts of other people, and they don't have any of those skills. And so the case example I'm thinking of is there was a, there was a medical group that was very interested in becoming more innovative and in kind of leading the charge of designing medical interventions that uh, could kind of take patient care to the next level. And so they wanted to build a strategic plan that would identify kind of what priorities they wanted to focus on and what actions and tactics might bring them there. And so we get a call for the kind of the goal setting piece of the strategic plan and go in there and start learning more about the dozen people that are kind of be leading this up. And the more I hear about those dozen people, the more I realize this is kind of a broken, dysfunctional, toxic, like bad family holiday, you know, when people <laughs> get around the table and, you know, that people are disrespectful to each other and no one is interested in collaborating because everybody knows better and there's they don't know how to disagree in a professional and constructive way and they don't really make space for diversity of opinion so that if somebody has a different idea about how to do something that it's kind of safe and trusting to be able to share that idea and you know there's factions of people who are kind of holding on to the last leader and how amazing he was and haven't embraced the different leadership style of the new guy and so I'm listening to all of this and realizing that we could spend all sorts of time and money helping them build a strategic plan that was going to be essentially a waste because yeah. they didn't really have the dynamics of the team that was capable of executing or implementing any kind of a plan. So, so I said that to the chairman of the department. I said, you know, I'm happy to facilitate a strategic plan for you, but it's kind of a waste of your time and money. And he goes, what do you mean? And I said, we just spent... 90 minutes telling me how dysfunctional everybody was and, you know, that people aren't communicating and people aren't collaborating and people aren't respectful. And you, know, you got a bunch of egos that are battling each other at the table every Thursday morning and you don't get a whole lot done. So, you know, if it were my group to be the chairman of, I might do it differently. And so he said, you know, what would you do? And I said, well, I would fix the team first and then I would do the strategic plan. So, so what, would that, what would that look like? And I said, well, you know, we, we begin by doing a thorough, thoughtful, rigorous assessment of all of the domains of effective teaming that we believe are drivers of good performance. And so we get metrics that tell us, are you guys operating by the kind of norms that allow you to treat each other professionally? And, you know, is everybody aligned with the same mission? And or to what degree are people aligned with the same mission and the same goals and the same vision and the same values? And do you know how to have conflict in a constructive and professional way? And then to what degree are people connecting and being respectful? 
and are people holding themselves and each other accountable? And are people then taking those differences that they've now allowed for and leveraging them and using those to explore and experiment and be curious and create and innovate and make change? And then when change happens, are you adapting to it? Are you adjusting to it? Can people kind of let go of the way it used to be and embrace the way it's going to be in the future? And then we can take all those domains and we can put a mean, you know, like from like on a Likert scale from unhealthy to healthy. You know, if you go from one to five with five being healthy, is this team a 3.8 or a 4.1 or a 2.2 or whatever it is? And then we can compare that with not to get too technical, but with some standard deviations that say, so this kind of average comes from what? A consensus of opinion? Or is that kind of a blend of a disparative opinion? So the people in the room, um, are they factioned in us and them? Or are they kind of cohesive around a, a way we look at things? And so between the, the means and the standard deviations, we can actually pinpoint what areas of that team are most important to work on? Where are the areas of greatest vulnerability? Where are the areas of greatest strength? So for instance, if you want to be a really innovative team, then we know that your environment has to be trusting and we know that you have to have accountability. So mm -hmm. if we measure the accountability on the team, we measure the trust on the team and it comes up low, then it's not a fruitful environment for expecting people to take risks and try new things and explore. So um, I said, and then, you know, once we do that, we can train everyone on what an effective team looks like. And then we can do kind of a gap analysis and say, of the strengths and weaknesses that we've assessed, which which actions are going to have the greatest impact on getting you guys where you need to be. And then we'll build a little action plan around that. We'll chip away at it until we feel like the team has a sufficient foundation to move forward. And then we can do our strategic plan and it will be meaningful. That's so good because it, it, I think most strategic plans just kind of lie in a binder in a shelf somewhere or a drawer somewhere. And I've heard many stories of it. And it's it's unfortunate for everybody that, that they go through that that time and waste and I don't know if they're just kind of blithely unaware that uh, their team is toxic and there are dysfunctions that got to be handled, or if it's that they just think, oh, strategic planning is something you just do every five years, and so and so they do it. So, and I love the uh, the data driven approach. That's cool. And so, well, now I just I know that your interventions are are unique and customized for each team based on what you're seeing with those assessments and those data. But I have to ask, tell us in your experience, what are the most common team challenges where it's like it's not where it should be and what are the most effective interventions so if if someone's listening and they're nodding their head like oh yeah we got some of those problems uh, yeah. tell us, yeah. what yeah. are some of the best things to do about them all right so think about the reasons that people in relationships get stuck generally and that will be the most common types of difficulties that teams have. So an easy one is that there has been some change and uh -huh. people are having trouble accepting that change. So that maybe my role was shifted or maybe maybe my favorite colleague moved to a competitor's business or maybe I'm in a school district, I'm a teacher and we got a new principal and she doesn't lead the way the grandfatherly guy that 
I used to like mm-hmm. does. And so, you know, people kind of under stress lose some of their maturity, you know, and dig in their heels and protest the change by not moving forward in many ways. And so kind of getting stuck because you're not managing change effectively is very, very common thing we see. The other thing that we see frequently is, and it kind of followed, so so maybe something has changed. Maybe you've got new circumstances or new leadership or a new role or new goals. The other thing that we see that's very common is that people can't come to consensus on the direction or the goal or the mission or the vision. And so it's kind of hard to move forward together in a relationship or on a team if you don't have kind of a common destination that everyone's going. And that's not to say that that the way you get to that destination is the same. In fact, the good, healthy teams kind of understand the principle of equifinality, that there are many paths to the same destination. Mm -hmm. But we all have to have the same destination. We want all of the different paths to be on the table because that's where the creativity happens. But we have to be very clear about what our goals are. A lot of teams get stuck there. And then, as you can imagine, it's easier to say what our goal is or what our mission is than to actually do it. And so we find that a lot of teams get stuck with accountability, that really, you know, being true to those values or being true to that mission or being true to those goals and actually following through with the things that they say they're going to do. And as you can imagine, if somebody's not accountable, the first thing that breaks down is trust. And so the symptom of a team that's stuck there is that they would tell you that I don't trust my teammate or I don't feel trusted myself. And that gets people stuck as well. And then the, the other area that is really common for us to see is the folks who are kind of afraid of taking risks, people who are kind of responding to the fear center of their brain rather than the frontal lobe where decisions get made. And, mm. you know, they, they could explore and experiment and be curious and create and and uh, innovate, but they're concerned about failure, so they hold back or, you know, maybe related to the other stock place that they don't feel like the environment will support their experimentation or their exploration. So they don't want to go out on a limb for fear that uh, they won't hold them out there. So those are the, the typical things. And then, you know, the, the interventions that fix those things are basically some version of do you want to stay stuck or do you want to move forward? If you want to move forward, it's going to be some hard work. So hard work, you know, if you think about all of the kind of human resources, organizational development, um, you know, data and resources that are out there, it's things like learning how to do conflict resolution, uh, learning basic change management techniques, um, learning how to have crucial conversations. I can't tell you how many times we're asked to come in and coach a team where all we're really doing is facilitating really awkward, really uncomfortable, really difficult conversations <laughs> between people. You know? and, and you know, it's simple to say, but it's really hard to do. It's hard to have a mature adult professional conversation about a very delicate, very sensitive, very fragile topic. And oftentimes, Having someone who can come in and put a piece of data on the problem that says, okay, we have corroborating evidence that this is, in fact, a problem. Having some kind of didactic teaching that says, here's what the best teams do. Here are what best practice is around this issue. And then sponsoring some facilitation of whatever the difficult conversation has to happen. As you know, from when we were building the team clock assessment model, which 
I, to this day, appreciate your contribution to the wisdom behind that. Oh, sure, thanks. A lot of these um, interventions are pretty stock human resources, employer relations, organizational development interventions, essentially bring people together and shepherd them around conversations that they should have been having without you. They should have been having what? Without you. you Oh, yes, without you. So, you know, like a lot of the things that we as consultants do is you give people tools that equip them to eventually not need you, right? And so our engagements tend to be relatively short, meaning a year or less, because if we... If we do them well, we're equipping people to not need our assessment, training, and coaching services anymore. So, you know, an example of that is we put together, a, I think we call it a culture accountability team in one in a school district, where I was being paid to facilitate that team, following the team clock assessment and training and action planning. Now let's execute these plans. So we put together a team of people that would be ultimately the team that would survive our engagement and do the work themselves. And so when a, when a sub-team, like a grade-level team in a middle school, for instance, were struggling with norms or values or direction or were stuck and couldn't move forward or needed conflict resolution assistance, then this team would assist them in doing that. And they got coached and facilitated along the way, but eventually they got good enough at it that it was pretty clear that my presence or team clock qualified people's presence weren't needed any longer in the room. And for us, that's essentially our job is done. You're now equipped with the tools and resources you need to be able to move forward in a healthy and productive way without us. You know, in a business, it affects customers, profit and customers and, you know, who makes money. In a school, we're talking about impacting children, right? So the stakes are a bit higher when a school district is having issues around not being able to embrace a new leadership style or not being able to agree on a common vision for the future or not holding each other accountable. The losers in that game are the kids and the families and the community. It's not about whether a company made money or not. It's about or not or whether somebody was able to innovate some amazing product or not. It was about kids not getting 100% of those teachers' engagement in learning because a percentage of those teachers were being distracted by the politics of a school rather than by what was happening in the classroom. So, you know, we view that as, as an important platform to address because, you know, in a way it's like stealing from oh, kids' yeah. wellness. If we're here for the mission of being able to educate children as successful, productive citizens in the next century, and 30% of our efforts are being distracted by office politics that happen in the cafeteria, then we're stealing from kids. I'd love to maybe zoom in a little bit in terms of, of making it all the more real. So, okay, we have a problem. People don't have trust because this happened to them in the scene there. Just so I'd love to make it a bit clear with regard to being able to relate and say, ah, yes, I have seen people up at arms about those very same kinds of issues. One of the places that you see it typically is following a, um, a merger or an acquisition. All right. And so you know, the whole M&A market is a place where you have, as part of the kind of immediate challenge, is this culture clash. Well, whatever the reasons might be, there's a 
these two different cultures coming together. And that, you know, the goal is to be able to meld those and merge those. And so then you have kind of all the examples of things that happened then that uh, prevent people from being comfortable taking risks. So maybe it's that a person from the acquiring organization, you know, isn't respectful of the history of where I came from, or uh. maybe the way that they approached me the first time was heavy handed in some way, or maybe um, I'm being micromanaged and I, and I was perfectly capable of you know, working autonomously and productively and accountably in the past, but all of a sudden I'm being totally micromanaged. So then people act that stuff out. And so they're, you know, what's underneath it is usually some version of either an us and them, the old guard versus the new guard, any way, anything that you can imagine that would be a divisive element on a team and separates off one group as being different than the other usually has the impact of making people fearful to take risks, making people fearful to trust. And so, you know, whatever the division is, whatever the us and them is, old guard, new guard, veteran employees versus new employees, acquiring, you know, organization versus acquired organization, these are all things that tend to split people up in some way and put them in factions. And so we, that, that's the beauty of, you know, back to the metrics for a second, that's the beauty of standard deviations when you're measuring people is that, you know, you can, you can find out whether the, the feedback people are giving you on the assessment survey is coming from a, a consensus together group of people or from a couple of outliers who might have a different opinion than everybody else or from groups like a high standard deviation suggests that people are very split. So if you imagine just statistically for a second that on a scale of one to five, people answered three. And if there were 20 people on that team, well, maybe all 20 people said three, mm-hmm. but maybe 10 people said one and 10 people said five. Well, that's a very, very different team. And we often see those kinds of metrics in mergers and acquisitions where you've got some division and often it's old guard, new guard, or whatever it happens to be. It's pre-change, post-change, dividing of things. And so, you know, the interventions around that are really to get around the table and say, all right, so what are the obstacles in being a little more unified and a little more collaborative and a little more respectful of differences here? And we may have to hear some stories about how I've always been trusted to do my job in the past. And when I got this new manager from the other company, all of a sudden I was being micromanaged and I can't work in that environment or something like that. Uh, I see. Each piece of data that we get unveils a story and the story unveils the solution or the path to the solution in some way. So I mean, that's the interesting thing about doing the assessment is that all you get are metrics, but the metrics themselves don't tell why something isn't working or why something is vulnerable and it forces you to then go back. So I'm, you know, I might've gotten a, you know, a piece of data on somebody who said, we don't have clarity about what's negotiable and non-negotiable. Well, that's a very generic question. So if you say to somebody, what, what did you have in mind when you said that? And they'll say, well, you know, when so-and-so came into our leadership team, their role and my old role have so much overlap. I don't know where I end and where she begins. And we need to get some clarity in our roles so we're not stepping on each other's toes so often. Well, now we have a story that tells us why that data came up. 
And now we have a path that says if we actually talk about this and get more clarity around boundaries between roles with these two people, they'll be able to work more respectfully and collaboratively with each other moving forward. Does that give you kind of an example? Oh, that's good. Yes, thank you. And so if a large portion of the interventions that occur are really just facilitating a tricky conversation that they should have had a while ago but didn't maybe realize with such clarity now that they have to have it, what are some best practices for conducting that kind of a facilitation uh, so that it goes effectively instead of off the rails and explosive? Well, if you think about uh, the very, very first domain of team effectiveness that I mentioned was norms. Mm -hmm. So you think about um, what you would do in an interpersonal relationship that you were going to commit to a long time to grow with another person. You would have some norms in place like, you know, let's not leave things unresolved if somebody's mad, whatever the norms might be. They might be spoken or unspoken, but there would be some basic rules of engagement that say this is the way that we're going to most productively move through a conversation. And for some people, that's just common sense. Let's be respectful. Let's be mature. Let's Mm -hmm. not raise our voices. Watch your body language. Watch your your eye rolls. All of the nonverbals and the things that create respect usually can be done, you know, without having to write down a contract that says here are our rules of engagement. But Pete, for some organizations, you've got to write a second contract of rules of engagement for people. And we do it in the form of a behavior checklist. We say, all right, here are here are your organization's values. Based on these values, that when it comes to this topic, when it comes to resolving conflict, for instance, that according to your values, which include integrity, which include excellence, which include fairness or whatever it happens to be, then what would that look like if you guys were going to battle out a disagreement about something? What would that look like? And then we create kind of a checklist of uh, value-based guidelines that say that However, you're going to move forward in these conversations, you're going to do it in a way that is reflective and accountable to what you all agreed were the values of this organization. And then whether you have to put it on a poster or write it on a piece of paper or get people to sign something or just say it in a room, let's be mutually respectful. Let's make sure that we listen and check for understanding whatever the list of behaviors are going to be, that gives the guideposts for having those conversations. And then somebody can be the referee. Somebody can, can kind of raise a flag when something is falling out of those, outside of those guidelines. Mm-hmm. We'll often use that metaphor. We'll say, what if everyone in the organization, whether you're the CEO or the janitor, gets to carry one of those little yellow referee flags that the football, NFL football referees keep in their belts to call follow with. And then anytime something falls outside of our values or our norms, everyone's allowed to call timeout, throw a flag and say, hey, that's not what we all, all, all agreed to here. I thought we were going to be good listeners and be respectful and check for understanding and all those kinds of things. So no one actually throws a flag, but everyone's empowered to call timeout and say, hey, let's fix this before we move forward. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Yes. I, I, I was just wondering if that was your role with the uh, white and black shirt and whistle that often, you were just shrieking. Often, yeah. I, literally, I'm imagining you in the, in the referee uniform right now. Yeah, oftentimes. And then you give somebody, we find out who in the organization is comfortable with that role because you don't want them dependent on an external force 
you want that to be an intrinsic self-monitoring thing like you would in any relationship. Yes, perfect. Yeah. Well, that's good stuff. Thank you. And I'd love to ask, is there anything else you want to make sure that you get a chance to put out there before we shift gears and move to the fast faves? The one thing I would put out there, and I hope people find a chance to um, visit the teamclock.com website. December 2014, we finished the team manual and was a, you know, we we're about to get it laid out and sent to print and prepare for the marketing and sale of the book when um, the aha moment happened that the goal is to sell a book, then we should go ahead and publish it and get the cover art done and find it and do all that and market it and sell it. But if the goal was to have the greatest impact on the greatest number of people, then we don't want to limit it to those who choose to buy a book. Why don't we just put the chapters into modules on the website for free and then everyone can come and check it out. And so if you go on the Team Clock website, that's what we did. And by look at the analytics on the website, that is the second most visited page on the website other than the blog. There are some very specific how-to steps at everyone's disposal. So thanks for the opportunity to share that out. Oh, well, thank you for making that and making it free. That's, that's really handy. So we'll, we'll certainly have that linked in the show notes here uh, associated with this episode. So let's go ahead and dig into the fast faves here. So can you start by telling us a favorite quote, something that inspires you repeatedly? I'm a big reader of Seth Godin's work and Seth's a, kind of a marketing thought leader guru, and he was actually generous enough to give Team Clock an endorsement, but I read just about everything he writes, including his daily blog. And uh, he says, so if you think about, you know, those of us who are trying to be entrepreneurial are often confronted with fear. So one of his quotes is, uh, anxiety is experiencing failure in advance. Mm-hmm. Tell yourself enough vivid stories about the worst possible outcome in your work, and you'll soon come to believe them. Worry is not preparation, and anxiety doesn't make you better. So that's kind of a quote, I think. Right on. And can you maybe also share about a favorite study or piece of research that you find yourself uh, referencing or thinking about often? You know, it's, uh, I can't, I'm not sure I can quote which journal. It may have been the Journal of Applied Psych, but they did a uh, study on the greatest drivers of consultation outcome. And so whether you're an advisor or a mentor or a counselor or a therapist or a coach or a consultant, they studied what features in that person drove greatest outcome. And they looked at gender and they looked at age and they looked at education, they looked at training. And the greatest driver, interestingly, was the sense of connection between the consultant and the client from the client's point of view after the first hour. Wow. So to me, that says something about how people engage and what happens in the chemistry between two human beings. And that when we're looking for coaches or advisors or mentors, you don't need to do a whole lot of shopping because your your sense of engagement as the client is going to answer the question pretty quickly. Oh, that, that's handy. Well, that's I like that because that makes me feel like I'm not just super judgmental as I'm selecting all these contractors to to help out and, and freelancers for projects. Exactly. Yeah. It's like maybe I should give them a fourth chance. <laughs> <laughs> no, you knew after the first hour. Okay. Yeah. How about a favorite book? You know, um, I'm going to go back to Seth. He put out a book um, 
Uh, what to do when it's your turn. So Seth Godin, G-O-D-I-N, and the subtitle is It's Always Your Turn. And it's one of these books that you don't just read cover to cover. It's one of these books that you keep nearby and you, you dog ear a page and you put a bookmark in it. And it's one of those books that you can go back to and be reminded of why we make art and why we take risks and what makes days meaningful, what makes connections meaningful. And so a lot of his work does that. But of the stuff that he's written, uh, what to do when it's your turn is, in my mind, the most powerful. Great. And how about perhaps a, a favorite, I guess, resonating nugget or, or piece that you share? And when you share it, you notice people nodding their heads, taking notes, retweeting. You know, what is that thing or two that you say that, that really connects and resonates with folks? Usually it's um, something about the value of the struggle. You know, it's something about how if you're willing to, you know, you know from seeing the, you know, the team clock model that there are simple version of it we use for cartoon-like faces. And mm-hmm. three of the four don't look very happy. And <laughs> people often say, you know, so Mr. Team slash relationship expert, does that mean that a, in a healthy team, you're not going to feel like great most of the time. And the answer is, yeah, for healthy, healthy and functional reasons, you're, you're supposed to struggle because that's, that's the way we grow and that's the way we change. And the idea is to keep changing and keep growing and keep evolving. And it's way too easy to not have the conversations or way too easy to go with the comfort that comes from not taking risks or not approaching something that needs to get fixed. And so I think the thing that I tend to push that resonates most with people is embrace the struggle that uh, there's a reason for it and it makes you better. Oh, it's good. That's good. That may very well find its way on a on a quote graphic with your face on it. So thank you. <laughs> we'll carefully review the transcript before making our final decision. <laughs> Sounds good. And could you maybe share a final challenge or call to action that you'd like to leave listeners with? I like to think in terms of what I call gestalt wellness. What I mean by gestalt wellness is think of wellness as this kind of large umbrella that kind of uh, is over your whole life. And what what that might include, and so, and that, and that we then are accountable for, for being stewards of all those forms of wellness. So maybe that's, maybe that's your physical, medical well-being, and you know how much you exercise, and the nutrition you put in your body, and the toxins you try to keep out of your body, or whatever it happens to be. Maybe that's your career wellness. Maybe you know the things that you do professionally need to have kind of a wellness orientation to them as well. Maybe that's financial wellness for some people. You know, maybe that's spiritual wellness for others, and you know, maybe that's relationship wellness for others. And I, I think for all of us, in some ways, it's all of those, and that we need to be good stewards of our own wellness and the wellness of that small circle of people who are most important to us in our lives. And that may be your family, that may be your friends, that may be your workplace, but we all own that accountability for the stewardship of that all-encompassing gestalt wellness for ourselves and those those people that we uh, that we love. Oh, beautiful. Thank you. Well, so to find more from you, it's it's teamclock.com and that has your social media and your email and your your phone and and all that. Sure does. That's a, that's the easiest way to get a hold of me. Perfect. Well, well thank you and, and I'm sure some folks will be heading on down and Steve, it's been so much fun. I wish you and, and Team Clock lots of luck as you continue to to shape and mold and, and optimize teams out there. 
Thank you, Pete. I appreciate uh, our history together and our connection and and whatever that's going to evolve into moving forward as well. Thanks a lot. Oh, that's a that's a great way to say goodbye. Thank you. <laughs> All, right. All right. Take care. Well, I hope that provides a useful reframing when it comes to struggle, when it comes to difficulty. That's good and fine and normal, and it results in growing. So if you want to check out the show notes, the transcript, the things mentioned, head on over to awesomeatyourjob.com slash F36, and I'll catch you next time. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.